0: Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from space kraken to giant sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash isaacarthur and use my code isaacarthur. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to the SFIA Monthly Livestream Q&A. We'll get started in just a moment, but go ahead and start getting your questions in the chat window so our moderators can start relaying those to me as soon as we start. Please try to keep the questions concise and watch your spelling, and try to be polite to others in the chat. We usually go for about an hour so you probably want to grab a drink and a snack, though we'll take a break about halfway through too. With all that said, welcome and let's get started. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to our show. We're just going to double-check real quick that all of our audio and visual is working correctly for a change since we had that fun glitch at the beginning of last month's episode with no audio for two minutes. And go ahead and start getting your questions in now while we uh, have a chance to detect that. And if anyone who's in the uh, chat can go ahead and confirm that they can hear me, that would be appreciated. Um, So what's our first question from last month while waiting for those to come in?
1: Yeah, Albert Jackinson had... Uh, asked if gravitons do in fact exist and we learn to create them and or harness their properties what technology applications would they have?
0: Uh, The key thing about gravitons is a lot like neutron beams they're one of those things where if you can find a material that actually reflects gravitons or lets you twist which direction they're going. Uh, so they're not just omnidirectionally emitting. That's what lets you do a lot of things like anti-gravity or maybe create a, a, a singularity or a particular spot you wanted or do some of the warp drive stuff that people tend to like to think about doing. That's the big thing you do if you have artificial graviton creation. And that's one of the two types of grazer they're, as opposed to a laser or There There's a gravity laser, which is a grazer, and there's a gamma ray laser, and they're both... Uh, Completely different, but also both suffer from the thing that they can't be made, because we have nothing reflected reflective those materials. Either one would be awesome to have, though.
1: So we had another question on how you think convergent evolution would affect life from different biospheres.
0: It kind of depends on if we mean convergent evolution socially or in the more biological sense. We would have very little reason to think that random mutation would take us back to a particular model. But you'd expect, like, we think eyeballs have evolved multiple times, for instance. Socially, though, I think what people mean by convergent evolution, in most cases, is not like a biologically same body, but more of a socially same unit. And in that case, that's we can look at examples from our own civilization, you know, um, in places where they, they've kind of come back to the same idea. There's only so many ways you can build a road. And in some ways, you have a better chance of getting convergent socially than biologically, because anything that's based off logic can kind of take you to the same location eventually is the idea. But it's still a bit of a long shot, to assume. A culture will come to the same thing. They probably make screws the same as we make screws. They'd probably make an axe or a wedge the same. Uh, their automobile might have four tiles. But at the same time, there's going to be so many differences that those similarities will be minuscule, probably.
1: Well, I see the questions are rolling in. <laughs> so uh, kicking off today, we have a question from uh, about technological singularity with animal Gupta, is it necessary that warp drive need only exotic matter?
0: It, it so much depends on how you define exotic matter. Um, the thing is, all of the matter we know of right now causes gravity and space time to condense when you when you're doing things with it. In which case, it is warping space time, but not in the way we want. To do any kind of warp drive relies on expanding space in front of you, sorry, contracting in front of you, expanding behind you, which means you need some sort of matter that will uh, expand space rather than contract it. We don't know of any such type of meadow, so anything that would do that would be exotic by definition, but there's a lot of different hypothetical exotic meadows that could do the trick. We don't I, know of any of them, though.
1: <laughs> I, I, I was just laughing. I saw a super chat from Eric Johansson saying, finally, I didn't miss the live stream. <laughs> well, uh, me, <laughs> we're going to have to wait for his question, though, because I have a few more in front of him. Um, to you, Tom Taz Ter, what are your opinions on the world building to sleep in the sea of stars. Sleep in a sea of stars.
0: What, what's my opinion, the world building, is it a story?
1: What are your opinions on the world building of to sleep in a sea of stars? I think that is a story.
0: Yeah, I'm afraid I don't know that story. Uh, if you want to leave that one in the comments, I can check and see if it's one I've heard of otherwise, but I don't know what I'm afraid.
1: All right, question from Paul Shields. Will you comment on the recently released governor reports on UAPs?
0: I think Simon had a comment about that, too. Uh, let's see. Um, no. <laughs> it's we, we did the we did that episode last year on the Navy UFOs, and it is something we should probably get to. Um, Joe Scott, um, he did a good initial video on that, too, um, discussing that a little bit. We will do one, but I haven't had a chance to really dip it in deep detail, and I think everyone knows the channel knows that I'm obviously on the skeptical side, but I'm not going to just go in and say oh it's all nonsense or oh this this is you know changing my mind until i've had a chance to really dive into it and I usually means i see other people's analysis on a lot of the aerial stuff because i'm not an aerospace engineer so i can miss little stuff you know on that that somebody else can buy and say that's obvious and i really am kind of waiting to hear other people's thoughts on it and have a chance to really structure mine before we do another video on that but when when what's there we'll probably do one
1: Johnny Wing says, So Isaac, I know you're a big fan of fusion, but do you think it would be possible for us to figure out antimatter and a leap past fusion as a main energy production method?
0: The problem with creating antimatter, ignoring all the storage issues, is that it would probably be very hard to ever create antimatter in an energy-positive way, which makes a great battery storage. If you can do it, like, even two-to-one, that's great for fuel. You can make it some big facility, store it up, and use it. Um, but what's more likely is that it would be a very high-energy production thing of well, maybe even 100-to-one might be possible, and that would be amazing. Uh, in which case, something like antimatter-catalyzed fusion, which we use a little tiny amount of antimatter to set off a whole bunch of fusion reactions, um, in a much tiny bomb, uh, you know, it's a little pellet-sized thing. That becomes your energy producing drive method. That's very good and fusion ish. If you can produce antimatter cheap enough, obviously, even if you can't produce it at a profit, that's still a great a great spaceship fuel. Um, but, you know, I think a black hole drive, for instance, has some advantages even then because you can't produce the antimatter for free on the way, but you can suck matter in with a black hole and shoot out. So there's ups and downs of all these ways drives you can walking, but antimatter is your best fuel if you can make it cheaply and store it safely. So that would be better than fusion.
1: <laughs> Speaking of Albert Jackinson, he's back, and he says, Good afternoon, Isaac. I had a medical <laughs> incident last week, and that got me to thinking about the medical field, as you might expect. What medical technology do you expect to see emerging in the next century?
0: Well, hi, Albert, and uh, welcome back. Uh, probably one the most prolific question to ask was down to yours. Um, I hope you're feeling better. What was the question again? I just completely lost track of it.
1: What medical technology do you expect to see emerging in the next century?
0: In the next century? a lot of them i mean you gotta think about how much we've had to develop in the last century your pacemakers all your cancer treatments um virtually every cure we have is either modern polished in the last century or completely invented in the last century medical nanotechnology the big one um the ability to genetically engineer things that can do a lot of fixing up or virus killing uh retroviruses uh, almost everything we discussed in that biotech episode to be honest from about two months ago um and uh, I would go down to that one, and the post-Human video we did right before that really talks about a lot of those options, and I hope you're feeling better about it um.
1: Eric Herzl, since no solution to the Fermi Paradox is sufficient, what do you think of quote all the solutions you've covered adding up to another great filter?
0: Um, I mean, not all of them in the sense of some of them are contradictory, of course, um, or would be physically impossible. But the usual idea for the great filters is is that you might luck out with one that's like the billion and one odds, but it's more likely that it would be one of those things that adds up a lot. Um, I would tend to say you're going to have some of them that are the big ones, the one in a million odds, but you're just going to have this stack of... Uh, e- even those will be probably something you could divide into subcategories that have better odds each, but you're going to have the stack of small improbabilities are just going to stack up to make it virtually impossible, is, is my guess. That is a good point, though. We don't actually have any good answers to the Floyd Paradox. We have least bad ones. Even the ones I favor are the least bad. You know?
1: <laughs> Lessrex 123 wants to know, what's your education? It's good to know they can count.
0: <laughs> well, it's good to know who can count
1: well, they have one, two, three in their oh. <laughs> title, so they want to know what your education, education
0: is. is. Uh, Sarah and I are actually both homeschooled. By the way, I gotta introduce my wife. Uh, she is uh, the lovely assistant reading us questions this week. Um, and uh, I guess I got my GD back in 1996 when I was 16, and I started college at Kent, uh, local school first, uh, to keep me home. Then I finished my bachelor's there and stuck around for grad school. I did a little over two years of grad school, about 60-some credit hours, so past the master's level, but not into thesis zone, and uh, left for the Army. When I came back, I had zero desire to ever go back to it, though. But um, I'd say 90% of what I've learned in life has been just out of books, films, TV, you know, educational things, audiobooks. That is the best education you can always get, but I would say for things like physics and math, it is... Very handy to actually have access to professors to help you stick you on the right path, too. So. But that's the background education there.
1: Isaac Bordeaux also wants to know what your thoughts are on string theory. Welcome back, Isaac.
0: You know, we were just writing an episode on... Um, what was it I was writing this on? String theory came up, and this will be one of the episodes like September October, because that's where we're at right now. Uh, so the Oh, The Edge of the Universe for August 26th. Um, episode 305, uh, where we brought up kind of the concept of string theory. And the thing is, I like string theory as a concept. It is probably one of our best models, but I also tend to often come off at of it very negative because while it's the best model I know of, I do feel like way too often theorists or popular media imply that this is some kind of almost proven or nearly so locked in thing like relativity. It is not. There is... Literally zero physical evidence for string theory, or M-theory, or multiverses, or Copenhagen. There is no evidence. It's not like neutrinos where it was hard to get evidence we got a little bit. It's not like dark matter where we have evidence all over the place. We just can't nail the individual bits down. We don't have any evidence to back them up. What we do have is support mathematical models that fit it. And uh, mostly, and that's often a good place to begin. That's how we found quarks, for instance, and neutrinos. But at the same time, my opinion of string theory is it's our best model, though I took to M theory, um, which is six of one, and a half dozen of the other. Um, but I don't like to treat them as hard signs yet. On the other hand, I'm not a pure popperin. I don't think that you can say that string theory isn't science because it doesn't have any evidence. It's in that hazy zone of where you. It would be nice to have some physical evidence, but you can't just stop doing science because you can't get the ideal scientific, you know, theory approach to hypotheses there either.
1: Annabelle Casas. what would get
0: so much hate mail from cosmologists after that. <laughs> Sorry.
1: Annabelle Casas says, what would life be in a galactic empire and can you make a video about it?
0: That was, I think, the Galactic Domination uh, series that we're doing This kind of that. We did do a Interstellar Empires one, too, but the new Galactic Domination series is kind of trying to look at if this was the goal of that civilization, if this is the reason they were taking over a galaxy, uh, You know, what's the what's the motivation? And we started with the big one there of we have this empire just because we want an empire and we don't want anyone else to have it. And the one that comes up this upcoming week um, uh, is going to be looking at what if your big goal is just resource utilization? What if the reason you have an empire is you want to grab everything? Then we got the Galactic Laboratory coming up, which is you know what if your motivation is just science? Right? That's the big push for your empire. And that is, when we try to look at galactic empires because they're so hard to put together under known science, or so even though one's allow faster night travel, you have to know what is that big motivation that keeps everything together. And uh, that's what we will explore in that series.
1: Okay, I want to give a few shout-outs here to our Super Chats. You did mention Simon Farmer. Uh, He gave a a Super Chat of $10, and he also had a similar question on the UAP Pentagon report, and he says, thank you for building a great community. We also had a Super Chat, it looks like 10 pounds, from Samuel Dominguez Lorenzo, and he says, thanks for all the awesome content, Isaac, and Alaskan, Alaskan Ballistics, also a $10 Super Chat. If it if matter, and he has a question, Mm -hmm. if matter was closer together in space and closer in time to the Big Bang, would time have been slowed down compared to our normal time being so much mass in one place?
0: Yes, but no. Um, There's another thing we discussed in that Edge of the Universe episode we were discussing. That's kind of our hyperspace episode there, too, because we're getting back into the Faster Than Light series. Um, And uh, I think we had Cheating Reality coming up shortly as the first one of that. You could jump into a congruent universe and move through it with small like that, pop back into a new one, if you had some way of doing that, and expect to come out having traveled faster than light, relatively speaking. But just being inside a universe where everything's slowing down time-wise, everything's slowing down time-wise, but the nature of our assumption of how universes work right now, which, again, is something we'll get more in that episode, is that the whole thing is doing that. If everything's slowed down, and then relative to what? There's nothing to compare it to, because that's everything. So that's kind of the context for that. Time would be running slower, but no one's there to measure it as it were. <laughs> so. um,
1: Captain Frantic says, are you an A-theory or a B-theory of time?
0: I don't have any official time one. Uh, the era of time questions that come up, you know, is it, is it gravity? Is it dark energies is the popular one? I don't have one I subscribe to. I do not have even a mode for how we think of time that I subscribe to. I just work with Minkowski space for the purpose of relativity and, and leave the philosophizing up to uh, those who are better suited to that or myself when it so inclines <laughs> me.
1: Um, also a question here from Joey. He says, if you could move back in time and move distance and then rapidly go back to the future, would you move vast distances across space without exceeding the speed of light?
0: Was that just a hyperspace question again? Could you read that one again? Sorry, I got distracted. I Switched think it is
1: very back. similar to that question we had earlier, but it's from a different audience member, mm-hmm. Joey. Um, um, if you could go back in time and move a distance and then rapidly go back to the future, would you move vast distances across space without exceeding the yeah. speed of yeah, light?
0: That is actually something we talked about that, that same video I was just mentioning. That is, the idea is not to go to your own universe, that's why I say congruent universes, because if you're going backward in time, the question then becomes... Um, why are you going forward in time again? You know, Why not just colonize that universe back then or something like that? So, but yeah, that's exactly what would happen if there was congruency that way. That's the question is, if I, if I jump back in time 10 minutes here, am I landing here? Or am I landing how much the Earth has spun in 10 minutes? Or how much the Earth has orbited in 10 minutes, etc.?
1: Okay, we have a Psycho X Team question. What do you think of Kessler Syndrome being a possible solution to the Fermi Paradox?
0: doesn't work out as one. Kessler Syndrome uh, is the name for when a space debris event um, starts to spiral, um and you get a whole bunch of debris scattered all over the place that makes more debris. You know, I, I have a piece of debris hits a satellite. That satellite explodes, sends out more debris, which hits other satellites. And next thing you know, you have a big cloud of matter all around the planet. I think the first time I became familiar with that idea was actually from um, Palladium's Rifts game, uh, as that was the reason for why the planet Earth was trapped off in space in the post-apocalyptic future was there was Kessler syndrome all around that, keeping them from their space habitats on the moon. Um, But the problem is space debris doesn't last forever. It goes away. It can be cleared. It's very hard to do. We were talking about that a little bit yesterday at the International Space Development Conference that the NSS put on. Uh, For those of you who caught that, Um, it's basically problematic to be but it can be removed and it goes away on its own. So it really doesn't fit that constant problem situation that would fit it.
1: We have a few questions about upcoming episodes or if you've done an episode recently on Mm -hmm. a topic. um, The first one is, do you plan on going back to Event Horizon again?
0: Anytime John invites me out, probably, <laughs> probably. Anytime John invites me out. It on. sounds
1: like they're yeah. thinking about it. <laughs> Sindri says he's, he's uh, mm-hmm. they're they're in the process of thinking about that. Um, have you spoke Vi Fi says have you spoken on proposed global governments.
0: Uh, I well, we I've, like every other young person in my lifetime, I rant about any number of governmental systems down the years. Um, we actually have an episode yeah, called... had an, Ge-
1: an episode on it.
0: The Geopolitics of Space coming up with uh, What If Art Hist, uh, the art history channel that Rudyard runs. Uh, he'll be looking more at the current governments potentially doing that than I will be. I'll be more saying the stage. But that episode will be coming out in July.
1: And Silver Comic says, Hi, Isaac, what do you consider the greatest failure mode of futurists of the past?
0: Um. You know, I see what Henry Ford said. If you, if you ask people what they want, they'd say, "Build me a faster horse." Um, that's the the one that we all get. There there. You get stuck in the problem, of the present. Uh, this happens to a lot. Of my uh, colleagues who talk about space travel in general is, they are so naturally lashed on to trying to figure out how to get the lightest. You know how to get. Space travel going with really light ships—they tend to forget about some of the changes the bombs exist. If you have cheap energy, for instance, and you can suddenly have, you know, a meter-thick armor on something. Uh, we all get kind of stuck in those modes. That's not just a futurism thing, but that tends to be a, a faster horse.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think this one is um, one you've also done an episode on recently. Uh, time zone says, Hi Isaac, how do you think if a completely automated alien sleeper ship does a gravitational maneuver around our sun with no effort of communicating with humans, how do you think that people will react?
0: I'm sorry, one more time?
1: Um, how do you think a completely automated alien sleeper ship, if they did a gravitational maneuver around our sun with no effort to communicate with humans, how do you think that people would react?
0: Kuisiemua, so I always mispronounce that. of Kane from University once walked me through how to actually pronounce that, and I still can't get it right. Uh, <laughs> but we had that one exo, uh, exostellar asteroid that came through that was shaped like a cigar, and the question was whether that was a sleeper ship or not. And I said, "Wow, we, we you know, we lucked out and saw one. Exactly, we did luck out and see that. Once we saw it, we cannot keep track of it though." Um, that would be kind of your odds on seeing a sleeper ship based on its size. Um, except that they really shouldn't have a thing shining this close to the sun. Um, and uh, we probably have millions of those pass through the solar system in a given, you know century. So,
1: and you had uh, an episode slim. on that, correct? Hmm? You had an episode on sleeper ships?
0: Yeah, we did have an episode on sleeper ships, yeah. That's uh, more of uh, the idea of us building them and, and the problems with them, though. But yes, very undetectable, <laughs> relatively speaking.
1: Uh, question from back down on the boat... What kind of governance do you think SpaceX will create in their upcoming Mars colony? And the the side commentary is that Eli won't answer my tweets. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, I think it would be a really bad idea for anyone. That, it, yeah, you don't casually start up your own new government. Uh, it, it takes a long time. And, and here's the thing. If you suddenly declare yourself a, a country of 10,000 people... Um, I live in a tiny rural suburb of a tiny city of 20,000 people uh, in a relatively unpopulated county of 100,000 in a state of 10 million. And I don't think Ohio, even as one of the biggest states out there, could really push around like the U.S. or China or things like that to say, hey, we're independent, let alone could the little village I live in. You need probably to have a population of hundreds of thousands before you could ever Achieve political independence, or your own governmental system in modern context, because you have to offer services to people. And you know who's who's running your courts? How many judges do you have uh, with a colony of thousand people? Uh, how many doctors do you have? And are they all specialists? And what do you do if all the other countries say, "Hey, we're angry at you now. We're embargoing you." So you are on your own. We're not going to shoot you. We're just going to tell you, "You're all on your own." That's a problematic situation to be in unless you've got a really big population. Especially
1: so. in outer space. Yeah,
0: <laughs> where everything is hostile and designed to kill you.
1: <laughs> Denver Sanchi says, what do you think the most likely form of faster than light is? I believe that's what he means. He put FTL.
0: Yeah, yeah, that is it. Well, um, the most likely of me is none at all. I, again, I really don't think we'll ever get that, but if I had to guess, I would say probably the hyperspace portions of it where you could, if there are parallel realities that you can move between. Um, that would be the one you would be able to probably most likely do, is I like can Google it and shift. But I don't think any of them will very probably be something we could do, ever. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, on that lovely note, Lucas Spren wants to know if you have read The Fundamentals of Astrodynamics and whether or not you would recommend it.
0: looking over the shelf to see if know the title that without me knowing it. Uh, no, I don't have that particular book. I'm trying to see what the actual name of the astrophysics books I have, though. Um, that was I had astrophysics with Doctor Markman that he was my undergrad advisor too, though this was a grads class, um, way back in like two thousand and one or two. And I think we we did use a book for that, I just can't remember what it was called.
1: All right. We have a question here from Winton Ashley, and, and thank you, Winton, for your $10 uh, super chat. He says, Isaac, there's antimatter and matter, but what about neutral matter? Could it touch both without exploding? Maybe it could solve antimatter storage, being able to store it in neutralium, powder, or foil.
0: Uh, that's one of those ones that's probably best answered by watching our antimatter episode, but kind of the short form on that. We have a habit of saying that antimatter and matter, when they touch, explode. That is not really true. What happens is whenever you combine two things with very different setups there that are opposite, they, an event will take place that reshuffles everything around. One of the most likely reshuffles of all the valence and sea quarks going on there is a pair of big photons, which effectively we have a ton of it as an explosion, same as an atomic bomb. But it doesn't have to actually produce that effect. And there are plenty of things that don't even you know, do that with their antiparticle. Neutrons, uh, anti-neutrinos and neutrinos don't really interact um, that we know of. Uh, dark matter probably does not either but I uh, would say. Uh, there's no real need for neutral matter in that kind of context because it's kind of like a positive negative, but maybe there's something like that out there and we don't know about it yet, too. Particle Zoo.
1: Here's a question that you're going to enjoy from Worston. Thank you, Worston, for your 20 pound uh, super chat. Isaac, what are your thoughts on eclectic vehicles and AI? think you may say, mean electric, electric vehicles and AI auto driving. I
0: like eclectic vehicles too. Um, I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like electric vehicles. I tend to think that they got pushed a little bit too hard early on when they weren't really up to snuff yet. And it's made a lot of people very pessimistic on them as a result. You know, you try to stuff something down people's throat, they are going to be permanently not fond of it. Um, but electric vehicles are starting to kind of make that, that transition into generally economical. Uh, they probably can get an economy of scale, um, you know, in the next decade where they'd be genuinely competitive without subsidy. That's hard to say. Um, batteries are the big one on that one, too, of course. I like them as a nice combination to go with nuclear power and uh, solar power combinations, but really that's more about getting the right batteries, getting better solar panels, and convincing people that nuclear power is good, which I think we also have some episodes coming up on. Yes, we do. Embracing nuclear power, August 5th episode, Uh, and a future of Thorium episode, which is September 2nd. That's the schedule on the right. and I know up on the screen we show the next month's episodes, but we usually are planned out more in advance. Like I think the schedule right now goes to September 23rd, uh, Spaceport. So quite a few episodes coming up.
1: <laughs> Jassy George wants to know about the Dyson Sphere. If we wanted to live on them, how would we obtain the Atmosphere?
0: You can't, well, I shouldn't say you can't, uh, You could potentially build Dyson spheres with anti-gravity technology, if you had artificial gravity technology. But the classic Dyson shell image that people get, and that's why we so often use the term Dyson swarm instead, to just indicate a lot of artificial habitats floating around a star. um, There was no gravity inside a spherical shell. If you add up all the various points of gravity inside a spherical shell, um, you like a hollow Earth, inside there, whether you're one foot away from the edge or in the center, there is zero. Gravity. So, if you got an atmosphere inside, there, it's going to fall into the sun because the sun in the middle is still pointed towards you. But you will still be able to breathe because you'll also fall in with the atmosphere to the sun. And some months later, you would land in the sun. <laughs> so, um, <laughs>
1: that 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 sounds exciting. Know. Yeah, <laughs> land in the sun and burn to a crisp.
0: Burn to a crisp. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs>
1: Okay. On that lovely note, we had a, a clarifying question from Sam Jones on the string theory concept. Mm-hmm. He said, if that, if string theory did turn out to be true, could the idea that gravity leaks across fatal dimensions explain dark matter?
0: Dark energy is usually the thing that they think of as being connected to rather than dark matter. We, we tend to think that dark matter is just a type of matter that is fairly non-interactive. And again, there's a lot of matter we already have who is not fairly interactive, you know, neutrinos, neutrinos. Um, Dark matter only has to be as non-interactive as neutrinos and just heavier like most particles. Most particles are actually heavier than atoms that we have, most particle types, like tau uh, tau neutrinos. And up at, sorry, bottom and top quarks are both heavier than uh, than whole atoms. Um, but uh, the leakage thing is more the dark energy concept. Gravity is insanely weaker than the other three physical forces. electroweak, weak, strong, nuclear, um, they all... You know, not as strong as each other. There's a difference of, you know, holes of magnitude between them. But gravity is a trillion, trillion, trillion times weaker. So the assumption is, and only positive. The assumption is often that it is connected to the flow of time, that gravity is only positive in the direction of time flowing forward, or that it leaks between universes, as in string theory. Those are very good theories. Uh, I don't really like to popularize them though, because again, there's no evidence that they're true. And I feel like when we popularize it a lot, it can get people the impression that that's been worked out. And then 10 years later, someone kills the theory, and everyone says, ah, ha, ha, you've proven this thing wrong once again. And it gives people the impression that physics is one of those fears that constantly disproves itself, when in point of fact I can't remember ever having done so even once. So <laughs> uh, we'll take one more question before we go to break.
1: Oh, I, I had, like, four. Oh, okay. Can well, we, we can wrap it up and five, then we go to break. Can we speak those uh, yeah. in? We've yeah. got quite a few coming in. So... Um, s- a silver Comic, what do you consider to be some low-hanging fruit in trying to investigate the Fermi paradox that we're not currently pursuing? Uh,
0: looking for atmospheric central is probably a high level oxygen would be the easiest one.
1: Okay. Um, also we have a super chat from Eric Johansson. Thank you for your donation. Would a united world government, even just a loose confederation, be beneficial for humanity to expand into space?
0: Probably less than people would expect. Um, You know, neither the Soviet Union nor the United States actually needed a unified government to get to the moon.
1: Well, right. a, a, and it might have uh, discouraged yeah. them from pursuing it as rapidly. Yeah,
0: I think it was being quite useful in many ways to have a, a unified government, or the exact opposite. But the key is, I don't expect us to ever really have one until maybe centuries down the road we colonize millions of other planets, something. In which case, I like to think we could colonize space, so probably could do it without a unified government. Otherwise, ain't gonna get it done, probably. <laughs>
1: um, Lucas Spren asks if you agree that it doesn't bode well. How many people? Pract- oh. Hold on, maybe I didn't read this question. Um, Sorry about that. I I think I'm going to skip that one and move on to the last one here with Darren Jones. We are a species. We as a species are just about ready to start (laughs) expanding into space again. Are we on the verge of greatness or conflict?
0: We are always on the verge of greatness and conflict. Uh, except for when we were completely over the edge into the, both of those things, <laughs> we, uh, we are—we always a species that kind of thrives on a bit of chaos. But that's—that's that's, you know, hey, that's how it works with us. Um, I think we are always on the edge of, of self-destruction, and uh, you know, we are at the same time both incredibly vile and noble. Oh, All of the things—we're great dichotomy. And on that note, let's go to break.
1: I was going to say, I think. We're
0: so we will be on break for a few minutes and it's a great time to get a drink and a snack and some more questions into our moderators. For those of you who tuned into last month's livestream, where we were doing our first one at the new studio, and the audio was out for the first couple of minutes, then the camera failed, twice, thanks for joining us again this month, and fingers crossed we were having less technical difficulties. But when the first camera failure happened, I'd been in the middle of discussing how black holes distort space-time, and I thought I'd continue and finish that while we're on break. The first thing to understand is that black holes are tiny and have no special gravity going on. Turning a star into a black hole does not result in its plants getting sucked in, or even making it dangerous to be nearby. It's regular gravity and doesn't start producing its weirder effects, until you are considerably closer to it than would already have been lethal close to the old star pre-black hole. Whenever you put matter or energy in a place, it draws things towards it and makes it a bit harder to get away the nearer you pass, as it would reach your velocity and if you increase that enough the velocity would rise to the speed of light or higher. One key notion there, the event horizon of a black hole is that place where it reaches light speed, but it doesn't stop right after that, go a few meters lower and the escape velocity is now even higher. Now folks tend to know of the event horizon and know that time slows near a black hole and eventually freezes. But this is not specifically at the event horizon except to an external viewer since what they would see would be you falling into that hole then freezing, rather than disappearing, as no photons bouncing off you or escaping to reach them anymore. This frozen image is going to redshift away though, growing weaker, as an ultra-slow motion capture the last few handful of photons to escape you as you fell and as each microsecond passes in that last bit of time, each new set of photons has to work harder and get more redshifted as they escape, until they finally can't see more, and each takes longer to claw its way out to the observer. So all this in of space time phasing is when you see time seem to stop for the person falling in, and indeed if you left right after them right before that, so you were falling toward the black hole yourself, you'd see them longer than someone else stationary to that black hole would because the escape velocity of the photons is just a blanket approximation for the outside galaxy. All motion is relative and you can get photons from that person falling in longer if you're flying in behind them. And in reverse, if you are flying away from a black hole, its event horizon would be bigger to you the faster you were going. Indeed, if you're falling into one, you would never see that event horizon get reached because it will run away from you. What we mean by event horizon is when you can no longer see events on the other side of it occurring but when talking about black holes around the galaxy we discussed the size of event horizon in terms of just where most folks in the galaxy would see them, or often out at an infinite distance for the sake of calculation. So your time dilation is dependent on the observer, but you can approximate that, very loosely, by calculating how fast you would have to go to reach that observer and rendezvous with them, or alternatively to calculate the potential energy needed to reach them, convert that into kinetic energy, then into speed, and jam it into the Lorentz formula. One divided by the square root of 1 minus the square root of the velocity as a fraction of light speed, to find out how much slower time should be going. Critically, though, it’s only when we start talking about building shell wards around supermassive black holes, what we call a bosch planet, or when we contemplate building some sort of raft of computers and virtual wards, in close orbit of a black hole, that time slows any degree that would be relevant to a society. Needless to say, that's still an abridged explanation but hopefully a bit clearer than the one given last time when the answer was on the fly with technical problems going on. And now, back to our hopefully glitch-free second half of the show. And we're back.
1: So you're ready for that question that we left on the break with Lucas Spren. It says, "Do you agree? It doesn't bode well how many people practically worship Elon Musk, and doesn't question whether he is sole designer on SpaceX or not. He never said he was, but some people think he is."
0: In fact, that's a leading question. Uh, Elon Musk, for a lot of people, is a love or hate figure. I think very well of him, uh, but I think of him the same way I think of like Tesla, Edison. There's a lot of there's lot, well, I don't want to say self promotion. They're good at promoting their work, and that's a very Positive trait to have in a corporation that's trying to get people to invest, you know, untold billions into something that has, um, you know, not got a proven track record of return. Um, so I'm very impressed with his ability to do that. I don't think he's ever tried to claim credit for anybody's work, uh, even by omission. Though he's he's the front man for that organization. But the thing to keep in mind is we still have a lot of inventions. Most inventions, though, are done by single people. But a lot of the big projects, you know, it's always the uh, uh, you know, John Smith, Joe Doe, and et al. And et al is like a thousand hard-working people who just didn't make the top of that paper. And in uh, you know, big companies like that, that can happen too. But uh, I think of Elon Musk as a good guy, but just another person. I don't, I don't really get my people worship or loathe him. He's a guy who gets a lot of work done for what we do, and he employs a lot of good people.
1: Roger M. says, don't you think that we should focus in panspermia of life through the solar system rather than finding life in dead planets?"
0: Um, well, I mean, I might be misunderstanding understanding that a little bit. Panspermia is the idea that life came from off-Earth um, to... Well, actually, I shouldn't say um, off-Earth specifically. The idea is that some source of life has propagated the entire universe prior galaxy or regions uh, with a common core as opposed to space colonization of a technological nature. Uh, We did do an episode on pan too, where we looked at the odds on that, but until we've actually had a chance to really dig into some of these planets, and we've never been to another planet with an actual research team yet, I think it's way too soon to be talking about the probabilities of life on any of them, you know?
1: Sci-Fi by Alan Crawley. Thank you for your $20 super chat. He says, you do a brilliant job of presenting the science of futurism. What about the political dimensions of moving into space and how do things like the Artemis Accords move us forward into space?
0: Um, again, we are doing that geopolitics episode with Rudyard uh, from What If, uh, what if uh shortly uh, in July, and he'll be kind of trying to look into that too. But the thing is, you know, Trying to guess who's gonna win the next election term is tricky enough without trying to throw in space to that too. I think folks sometimes spend a little bit too much time trying to predict the political situation. Um, and a lot of times it's kind of wish fulfillment. It's like with aliens it was like these aliens who are much more noble than us and would and we'll do these much more enlightened things and we all are done and basically realize that these aliens agree with them on everything, and that's they're just assuming that they were enlightened because of that, or that's what enlightened ones would act like. The the history of our world has been one of constant turmoil with changing political and ideological systems. I can't imagine that uh, spreading out over a galaxy. Or even just a solar system would suddenly make us more homogeneous. But that's my opinion. <laughs> we have
1: a lot of government questions today. Paul Leake II wants to know how do you feel about the saying "One man's utopia is another man's dystopia" and how it relates to unified governments and the ethics of implementation.
0: Oh yeah, I think that's I think that's unambitious. One man's utopia can also be his dystopia. I should think. Uh, <laughs> um, I you know again, what a lot of us would like to see is not. what others would like to see uh it it depends on what your core assumption is for how life should work out and you know what is the core basis for your morality and things like that i'd say the political questions actually better directed my wife the politician rather than me (laughs) but (laughs) um yeah i will not answer questions that would you know speak to basically advantage a certain political situation or position. that's not what the show's about i have those same as everybody else i just you know we try to keep the show away from that and not potendo neutral I have these opinions, uh, but rather, I just try to keep my own opinions out of it, too. Um, And so, be a little careful with some of the political questions, gents, because on ladies, I would not answer them, generally speaking, so.
1: Um, We have a super chat of 25, uh, actually, I'm not familiar with HRK, from Pantagana, and uh, she is saying, why do you think so many people use the word fold when they mean times. A fold is double, so a one hundred, I'm sorry, 1,000-fold increase is 2 to the 1,000 times, not 1,000 times.
0: Um, that's actually a good question. I, I tend to be one of the relatively few people who uses phrases like 10-fold or 1,000-fold in casual conversation, but uh, yeah, they would be, if we were thinking of it in that context, to the 10th power is 1,024, right? And 1,000-fold uh, would be... Two to 1,000th power, which should be something like ten to thirty-three. That's what, ten to one hundred thirty-three, something like that. Doesn't matter. Ten to three hundred thirty-three, whichever.
1: You're, you're guessing.
0: Yeah, I am kind of guessing at this point. Jeez.
1: That is not.
0: <laughs> it would be. It would be like ten to three hundred thirty-three, um, but. Uh, I don't know the actual basis for that expression. It might actually mean times. I, you know, I'm, I'm, That would be an etymology question I
1: couldn't I answer. I thought it was a good question as oh, far yeah. as u- use of the word appropriately. But mm-hmm. it also begs the question, you know, when you use a word a certain way, Mm-hmm. The, Ex, yeah, but So frequently, does it the change one? the under underlying meaning from what it originally was to common usage?
0: A lot of times, the original meaning is, is not even what the original uh, you know was recorded to, because it was in common usage for like a century before we even got around to writing out what it meant.
1: Kevin Berg says, Have you noticed the doomsday argument is moot because we are such a young race?
0: No, I, I think... The doomsday argument is a probabilistic argument. We did an episode on it way, way back, like season one or two. It's like somewhere in the first 20 episodes, I think. Um, and uh, I've always meant to actually redo the episode on that, just to explain the while that walks through a little bit. But it's an example of a probabilistic argument in, in the anthropic principle, and it's one of all three big ones that we use to demonstrate the anthropic principle. Um, and uh, the other two being uh, fine tuned universe. You know, is this universe uniquely? suited to life and the simulation hypothesis, is this is this universe real? Um, but the concept there is that in science we have two principal ways, in, in day-to-day life we have two principal ways that we deal with total ignorance, right? Uh, we can assume that whatever we encounter is a mediocre example, the Copernican or mediocrity principle approach, or we can assume that all seeing an object is not random, the, you know, the anthro, self-oriented. Uh, principle. And uh, that would be something like, I look around, I see 10 other people wearing a jersey, and I'm wearing a jersey too. Uh, we should not assume that most people wear jerseys. We should assume that I'm seeing those people because I'm a team member of theirs who just got knocked on the head. The key about all of those, things like the doomsday principle, so a doomsday argument, sim-hop, and uh, fine-tuning is not so much the answer, is that these are examples we can use where it's impossible to get more information from a practical standpoint. Uh, and so it allows us to actually ask these questions about how the best way to ask a question in total ignorance is. And that's where that comes in. But uh, maybe we should do the Doomsday Argument episode again, though, because it's a fun topic.
1: <laughs> um, Jamar100, also thank you for your super chat. He says, I'm a big fan. My question is, when we say that a black dwarf could one day turn into iron, do we literally mean a ball of solid metal that you could walk on?
0: You wouldn't want to walk on it, probably. It um, might burn your feet. <laughs> well, it would be cold by then, to be fair. The, the the iron star phase takes place so long down the road after something's gotten to be a black dwarf. Um, you got to keep in mind a black dwarf still has about half the mass, you know, half a solar mass. And now it's condensed into iron. Um, and when it gets to that point, it can start transitioning to black hole. But just anything of that size, when it's down to an Earth size and cooled down, the gravity on that's enough to shadow you completely just from the difference in force from your feet to your head. You're all getting near to the speedification point of a black hole at that point, so.
1: I just saw a chat. Somebody says, you're building a spaceship in the backyard. They must have seen my raspberry bed. Did they? <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's visible from the freeway.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Awesome, what is the unit insignia on the mug in the background? I think they're looking at your uh, SFIA. This bed. one? Yes.
0: Or- That says, uh, if brute force isn't working, you are not using enough of it. It's uh, one of our our motion dicey cups. I think there's actually a link for them in the episode description. So you can get them on the website.
1: Light, thank you for your super chat. And he says, hi, Isaac. Do you think that lunar colonization could be profitable today? And if not, what are the biggest obstacles that need to be overcome first?
0: (laughs) Other mugs. Uh, Lunar, what was it again?
1: Colonization.
0: Neuro-colonization is possible today? Yeah. Brilliant.
1: Profitable today. Not profitable. possible, profitable. That's the key oh, wow. question.
0: Um, you know, since I am not a billionaire, I tend to be careful throwing around out in terms like profitable and what would be, uh, since if I knew these like that, I presumably would be a billionaire. Um, or,
1: or you would not be a billionaire because you would have spent the money on it
0: all. That's, that's true, yeah. <laughs> I think, um, I, I don't know, you know, Could you do one now? Yes. We could absolutely do a moon base now. We could even do a moon Colony now. Could we make it profitable? I don't see how it could be profitable in a classic sense at this stage. More sort of like early investment. uh, You buy stock in it in a century from now, it pays off really well. Or you can sell it for increasingly large amounts down the road. It seems like if your asteroid or comet mining was something that would take a century to get back, you might be able to say, Hey, we can prove we have this thing, it's coming back towards earth and arrive here a century from now and sell for hundred dollars per unit. I'm going to sell my share right now for ten bucks per unit. You know? So that's an option maybe. Future commodities forecasting <laughs>
1: Kevin Farquad says, Isaac, first time here. I love your live stream. Apologies for the interruption. I just wanted to say I'm a huge fan. Thank you so much for all of your work. I love all of your content. Again, thank you so much.
0: Well, you're welcome, and that was a great interruption. Thank you very much.
1: <laughs> Sanobello says, are there any ways that we could have a shape-shifting human?
0: Yes. For a given value of human. Um, you know, one of the First times I heard it really put into semi-scientific terms was in Frank Hobart's sequel to the original Dune novel, Dune Messiah, with uh, Benny Talaxu and I can't remember what they are. Shapeshifters are called, um, but they are mules. Uh, but I can't remember the call. Anyway, they've shapeshifters there where they have also some very intensive muscle control and and you know can move their joints, things like that. It gets very all. But probably the one. Not a very good movie, but probably a good example for this was the uh, the Terminator sequel that had Doctor Who in it uh, as Skynet, um, where John Connor, uh, because they wanted to destroy the franchise, had been turned into a machine composed of tiny little machines instead of a big robot. So he basically was walking around as a, you know, a trillion little machines like cells that could assemble into a human form. Um, and that would be a really good example of how you would do that. Probably not by having single machines that were all identical, either anyone the body we have is. So just the idea that you could have a cohesive force between those allows you to rearrange them.
1: Sounds like uh, this person might have been watching your panel discussion yesterday ah. on... Uh Inter- is the on,
0: on the IDSC. Uh, I, yeah, yeah,
1: International Space. International
0: Space Development Conference, yes.
1: So, uh, civil engineering with Tanya mm-hmm. Laird. Hi, Isaac. Could a black hole farming civilization last indefinitely by dumping their waste heat back into their black hole? We were just discussing waste heat. <laughs> yeah. Um, from that conversation. Yeah, I mean, that was
0: one of our original... Um, for, for context, we missed that the International Space Development Conference that got canceled last year... Uh, went on this year virtually, and uh, that was the last few days going on there, and I showed up as a panelist and was uh, to accept the award, and, and this year, the award I got, which is seeing the background up there, I, I have to camera on Sarah again. Oops, oh. You're on me. <laughs> I thought I should uh, laugh. The one back there in the corridor, that's that's the award from them from last year, um, but uh, congratulations to Phil Plate, by the way, for having won it this year. <laughs> um, it's Black Horse, Heat, loss and um, I get distracted today. I think it's because it's a Sunday. I, I think we'll go out and play in the garden after this. Um, but uh, <laughs> you, you could potentially dump question? heat yeah. down a black yeah, hole, okay. but we do not really know how the thermodynamics of black holes works. There's a tendency to assume that you can use black holes to cheat thermodynamics when, in point of fact, all we know for sure is that we can't say for sure that you can't. Uh, we haven't ruled out that black holes follow the lots of thermodynamics yet or some closed version of them. And until we do, there is a possibility you could dump heat down to one, without you know, and then pull it back out as a entropy free source. But I tend to be a little bit dubious about that or using as a stealth tech of being able to hide your civilization from it. But here's the big one. You would probably be able to find some way to dump some in. You would still have some leaking out that just got missed. And if you are a civilization that can actually do that, you gotta think about kind of civilization that you'd be trying to hide yourself from that would be a threat. If you've mastered black hole technology and heat farming like that uh, they better be some multi-galactic empire or you're going to corp-stomp them. So you're not really all that worried about hiding a little bit of trails and then they could see those tiny little bits anyway. So,
1: Okay, I think this is a follow-up question from Worston from earlier. and Thank you again for your donation, Worston. He says, your th- thoughts on AI in autopilot or auto-drive in vehicles? Now, I know that you're looking forward to when oh, yeah. I can get that um, to drive to Columbus, <laughs> but...
0: <laughs> My usual notion is that... Uh, you know, it's not about do I trust the computer to drive better than I do. Is do I trust the computer to drive better than you do. The answer is yes.
1: <laughs> I drive uh, not pretty you. good.
0: <laughs> you drive pretty good. Uh, I will acknowledge that. But, I mean, I actually trust the computer to drive better than me because I, I have zoned out before. I have had, you know, in God knows how many hundreds of thousands of miles of driving over 24 or 5 years of driving, I've had times where I've zoned out, almost gotten in accidents, and I've gone off the road once or twice, too. You know, it's it's... The computer's not going to get tired like that, and that's the advantage of it. And we're not going to put something like that in place until it's been really tested. You know, it's going to be safer than the average driver by an order of magnitude before we ever let it actually hit the road.
1: Do you think um, it would, like, allow you to switch back and forth? So if you're driving a right, short trip and you want exactly to drive, you can. Be. And if you're driving a long trip and you want to take a nap, that that's an option?
0: It will be customizable to what people want to be, but the place where it's likely to leak in, first is going to be on the freight side of things, where it's just straight drive slow, and the other is going to be where it catches you you start to go off the curb. There's already getting those in place where it will autocorrect for you. That's Mm -hmm. where it leaks in. And, you know, most of us want to still have our hands on the wheels. We like to know that if we start drifting off, you know, there's going to be that rumble strip on the side that lets us be awake. Well, in this case, we like to know the car is going to get the wheel back on the road. Um, That's kind of where that's probably going to go for us. But, yeah, I think you absolutely want to be seeing computers more heavily used in cars. We've had autopilot on airplanes for a long time. We still have pilots. Uh, But at the same time, do we really need to have them on everything? Probably not. So they'll definitely get into there. I'd like them.
1: James Nagari says, why aren't people pursuing cold fusion?
0: Um, because fusion fundamentally is best done at very high temperatures. That's that's kind of the issue there. The high pressures and temperatures where it's most easily done. If we had a good theoretical model for how you could actually achieve cold fusion, then we'd be throwing people at it left and right. And it's not just, there have been a lot of scams on cold fusion that have come out. Uh, there's also been a lot of real research done in that direction, too. There have all been scams with every other type of power source. Core fusion has a bad rap, but part of that comes from the fact that there is no known theory or theoretical basis for you to not do it as a, as a scam. So when someone develops a good theory that isn't scammy, then it will probably get a better reputation.
1: <laughs> Jamal Anoussa says, what are some recommended readings for someone interested in futurism at a beginner level, please?
0: For futurism specifically at a beginner level, um, I mean, you know, Ray Kurzweil, uh, Von Revenge, those are good places to kind of start off on some of the thoughts with it. I wouldn't say they really, I'm not sure there really is a beginner level of it, but those are probably the most cited ones. Anything by Nick Bostrom. Um, you know, he's he's a philosopher, more than a futurist, but uh, a lot of his works on things is exactly kind of thinking where you're at for that, to kind of move in that direction. I cannot remember name the fellow who runs Less Wrong. Eliza, Yudowski, I think maybe I'm probably mispronouncing that. Um, they, the, a lot of the basic futuristic thoughts that you see there, Adam, Adam Sandberg, those are good ones, too. Um, but book-wise, I don't know that i really say there's any book I'd specifically recommend. If I write one, I'll recommend that one, though.
1: How about you know, your Audible favorite science fiction movie?
0: Favorite science fiction movie is always Blade Runner. It, uh, that, the original. Um, that's, that's always my number one. And uh, followed shortly by the David Lynch version of Dune. <laughs>
1: James Thompson Green wants to know, how about a future episode on, quote, clearing a Kessler syndrome? In other words, the worst case has happened. How short of waiting a long time could the orbit be cleared?
0: Um, how short could be cleared? An hour. Flight time for a nuclear bomb to go up there and everything that's in so that order path to be vaporized, pretty much, about an hour if you're willing to shoot nukes off in in low orbit, which it depends on how badly do you want to get off that planet. And keep in mind, you can set Kessler syndrome off on some planet that has no atmosphere or ecology on it, too.
1: Guatem Vinald says, Hi, Isaac. What do you think will happen after the Theory of Everything? What will be the major implications, and what will be the new frontier of science and research?
0: I was ranting about string theory a little bit earlier. Um, This is another thing that happens with the Theory of Everything. It would be neat to have a theory of everything, a grand unified theory that connects gravity up with, you know. Um, but there is a tendency to assume that this must be true because we would like it to be true and because we found out the strong force was connected to the weak force and that to electromagnetism and that electricity and magnetism were connected so gravity must be connected uh, even though it has nothing at all like those on the fact that it operates in a three-dimensional universe in that inverse square way. Um, it There may be a grand unified theory but we should not take it as a given that there is and that's what I kind of mean when I see things like how a given theorist or you know, group of theorists or the popular media is kind of taking a theory that has no real evidence to back it up per se and pushing it as something that almost certainly is true in the way the public absorbs it. You know, I would love to have a grand unified theory. I tend to tilt towards assuming there will be one, but don't take that as a given. If you approach it from the assumption that there is one, you could end up getting blinded to the alternative things so they have nothing to each other, that they're right angles to each other, you know.
1: Nephilbutanation says, "Hi Isaac, what do you think the first reactions to an undeniable detection of an alien civilization will be?"
0: Uh, Wtf, Omg, probably. There's okay. a faster type in. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Parsley Tao, thank you for your super chat at five dollars. He says, "Hi great people, what's the biggest bang we can theoretically produce? Is a well-timed pinrose process on all available black holes the biggest bang?"
0: You know, there's the idea that you could connect all the various black holes in the universe together simultaneously through whatever's was allegedly, theoretically connecting them and then set them off to detonate in some fashion. Um, I think the biggest bang you could ever set off in one shot would probably be the Big Bang, um, although that's not really the right way to look at that explosion. Um, I think your biggest probably are the ones we always see actually occurring, like quasars or um, black hole mortals, so... Probably your biggest energy release one you could plausibly have happen would be two galactic core black hole modules. Uh, You should see a lot of those happening in about the one quadrillion year range, I guess, is when you would see a lot of those happening.
1: Michael Tape says, Is it your opinion that life exists under the ice of Europa, and what might be the most expedient method of finding signs of this life?
0: Expedient?
1: Expedient, you know, like a uh, nuclear
0: bomb, yeah. Define <laughs>
1: life, wouldn't yeah. that destroy
0: it? <laughs> I always try to find uses for nuclear bombs that are peaceful. Um, we did a test. It was always a bit of a funny one. Uh, it was the, the day after President Obama got nominated for the Peace Prize. Was also the like the headline article was NASA nukes moon.
1: Uh. Oh, that's the next question. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but we, we did a uh, an impact onto the moon to cause dust to you know to shoot up in the uh, not atmosphere but low orbit of the moon, and then we could spectrally analyze that dust. You could theoretically ram something into Europa uh, that managed to penetrate that hell 10 kilometers deep or whatever it is to get to the ice there down the water and have the water spray up and analyze that for life forms that came up, which is a good thing to use like a mass drive or, uh, you know, a, a rod from God or a nuke for. But probably your best way to do it, if I was going to just throw one together, would be a large radio uh, thermogenic RTG, a large radio thermal isotope generator. On the end of a long fiber optic cable that had good tensile strength, they just let it melt down the ice all the way down 10 kilometers and then have sensors on the back end of that. And, of course, you want to make sure that's well-shielded, otherwise all your new life forms would be getting encountered by that RTG-powered probe would be getting sterilized by that radioactive probe. But, you know, it's doable. That's how you'd melt down through the ice, I think.
1: Not Intimidated asks, What would the consequences be of taking mass off the moon?
0: Um, I think the question that tends to come up is if we if we took mass off the moon in large quantities, and and you have to say that'd be a lot of quantities, that it would somehow change the orbit of the Earth or the Moon or things like that. And the trick to remember is that we have angular momentum. Think for for instance, if you are taking stuff off the Moon, when you left the Moon, you were pushing against the Moon in a different direction. We did that, so you know like when you add mass to the Moon, you were already you don't slow the orbit of a planet or a moon down by adding mass to it in general, because the stuff you added to it was already going at that speed when you injected it. Um, but you could, if you were willing to extract the equivalent of the entire Earth crust from the moon, that could have a significant impact on, on the overall mass distribution of the Earth-Moon system to cause some orbital changes. But I, you'd have to run through the calculations on them, and they'd be very specific to each case.
1: Kevin Dunn says, Isaac, when do you think we will get to building a giant telescope on the far side of the moon?
0: That would be something I would hope to see this century, uh, You know, especially when those big Xena telescopes, uh, just because I think that's cool to have one that's made out of liquid metal. Um, but uh, that should be, I'd say we probably have probes or telescopes, decent-sized ones on the dark side of the moon, far side of the moon, obviously as dark in terms of noise probably in the next couple of decades, to be honest. It's, it's so advantaged to, to land one day And if you put a Hubble up, you can put Hubble up and put it on side of the moon, is the idea.
1: Michael link said, thank you for your $20 super chat. And he says, sup, man, keep up the good work. Loving the show.
0: Will do, man. <laughs> <laughs> thank you.
1: K.W. Matterhorn, hey, Isaac, what are your thoughts on Lancaster Lab's quench gun? They say they could eventually scale payload to orbit costs down to 50 bucks a kilo.
0: Um, that would be awesome when they pulled it off. You know, we have a lot of things that could potentially drop it down to under $100 a kilo. I like lost room loops as my, my preferred one for that. Uh, a lot of older rings, as everyone windows. but those are much further down the road. Fuel is not really the big cost in that stuff. It's the reusability angle and a lot of the launch costs, and I think that's hard to really calculate because a lot of that relies on economy of scale, too. I think we've could... time for a few more questions, then we can't quit.
1: All right. Um, Val or Doug? excuse me if I mispronounce that one, it, Vail Darg says, does Isaac see a future where these unprovable or disprovable theories like multiverse, simulation, etc., turn into full-blown science-centric religions? Yes. Well, that was easy. Next <laughs>
0: question. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that could happen very Did easily. Did you
1: want to expound on that?
0: Um, You know, physics kind of broke off of math toward the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century because it was kind of the idea on the one hand that you want to be a lot more actual experimental proof of, of ideas than just what worked on paper. And at the same time, there was an awful lot of you know mysticism and woo-hoo on, on the physicists of the late 19th century, too. And uh, so that's, uh, you know, you look at that period in time, had a lot of that too, like Egyptology especially took off in that period. Um, there was a lot of tendency of, of various scientific theories to quantum mysticism is, is its whole religion already, so Yes.
1: The videographer experience says, Isaac, do you think humanity will make it become multiplanetary or multi habitat in time to survive potentially a billion years or so?
0: A billion years is a very long time to, to really have anything that we might qualify as humanity still kicking around at that point. I would think that if we were still around anything that was really recognizably us, that it would probably be uh, not a great sign for us either because it have be a bit stagnant. But at the same time, yeah, I think we will. Um, you know, it kind of though is kind of like asking, you know, wouldn't amoeba last that long? I think we, I think we'd be around still in some fashion, or something that we would made that could call itself a child of ours would be around.
1: Q9073 says, What do you think of the physics of multiple time dimensions? I can't seem to find much on the topic, and I feel like it might be another form of multiverse travel if they exist.
0: And I'd leave that script. Or something. We've had so many people mentioning things that were in the script. I just finished writing, like, last week. What day is that um, one
1: coming out again? That one's
0: coming out on August 26th, Edge of the Universe.
1: Ooh, on the edge of their seats for the summer. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, multiple time dimensions is, is every bit as an option, same as multiple physical dimensions. A lot of other ones, too. Right? Sometimes the basis for things like you know magnetism and electricism is to assume there's another dimension that they operate in, and, and that's the cause of them. Is there's an up-down that's compactified. You know, it's uh, There's room for other dimensions, space and time, and there's room for multiple time dimensions, too.
1: Okay. Uh, uh, another question here from Albert Jackinson what form do you think the internet and social media will take in the future, especially with technologies such as BCIs and VR?
0: Um, predicting the internet in that context is really hard. The internet's main purpose is to transmit information around, and that's why it's mostly used for showing cats and their love of cheeseburgers um, <laughs> And, uh, you know, it's, I think with BCIs, it gets a lot easier to do a lot of stuff smoothly. Like, when I was a kid, Everything was about how there was going to be video telephones sometime soon. Video telephones and a and long-distance rates would go down a bit, too. Uh, for those of you who remember, when there was such a thing as long-distance phone calls and collect calls. Um, but then video phone calls really didn't take off in favor of text messaging instead, an example of how you don't always want more bandwidth. But I think that you probably would actually start seeing a lot more of that, like, seamless, you know, communication where if you were, like, talking to someone, it felt like they were literally in the same room with them, possibly even emulated in augmented reality. I think that's probably one of the areas that would go. Everything else is so hard to predict, though.
1: All right. Here's the last question for today to end on a, a fun note. Uh, if Jeff Bezos' mystery passenger decides to give their ticket to you, would you go? No. I was going to say, is this the mystery passenger offering yeah. it? And how do they <laughs> yeah. know you're not the mystery passenger already?
0: Um, <laughs> I uh, I am a very cautious person, and I am not terribly fond of flying. Um, I, uh, I would... Love to see space one day when it was already so mundane it was like going to Disney World. I would put it that way. I encourage other people to go, but I myself will not. Was
1: guaranteed to get so, back. I might take your ticket for you.
0: Well, you'd be welcome to take it. Uh, <laughs> insurance policy. Hey.
1: <laughs> I did
0: see one from France Cadet at the end too. If we finish out, what is the right way to imagine the Big Bang? Uh, as I was just saying, I feel like I like that script. That is another one of the ones on the edge of the universe. We'll be discussing for that and uh, from Rairston asking when you're trying to go to sleep what you wonder about lately uh, usually I'm listening to an audiobook on a little headset when I go to sleep and of late I've been listening to Kyphus Kane Hero of the Imperium uh, from the Warhammer 40k novel so that, that's what I've been listening to of late and what I was thinking about when I went to bed. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess we'll go ahead and sign off there for the day. Thank you everyone for joining us and what a surprisingly glitch-free uh, day it's been. I hope you all enjoy the rest of your Sunday and uh, have a uh, good one. And, we'll see and you Thursday. thank you to
1: everybody for their super chats. We had a lot of super chats today. We really appreciate it.
0: Yes, my wife is the courteous one. Thank you everybody for your support on the channel and we will see you on Thursday. So that will wrap us up for the day, I want to thank everyone for joining us and again if we didn't get to your question, feel free to post us a comment below and I'll try to get to it this evening. Also you can continue the conversation at any of the forums on Facebook, Reddit, Discord, or our website, IsaacArthur.net. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you Thursday.